just past 7 o'clock in another action-packed edition of Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And Ira, you're getting really excited, and we'll talk a little bit more about your plans for a next or this, you know, this coming week, what you plan to take in. There's not that many choices as we get uh, to kind of a lull in the sporting world for everywhere minus this show. But you, you're admitting now you're really becoming a serious racing fan. I was following probably the only person in the world that was watching Genesis Golf and NASCAR at the same time <laughs> on the, on the computer and the television set and going flipping back on whatever. So it was very it was a great race. The, the Daytona Road Course was fantastic. Plus the golf match, the Genesis was excellent too. So there was a lot of exciting things between basketball. I mean, that's what I like about Iron Sports is I have such a variety. I mean, and who else got up at three thirty in the morning and watched tennis on I promise you nobody Friday did and Saturday? <laughs> so I mean, the point is that I'm watching the tennis at three thirty in the morning. I'm watching NASCAR. I mean, you don't really have to if you if you don't have the time to watch sports. Just let me. I'm taking care of it. I'm watching it all. I'll tell you what happens. Just listen to my show. It's the fastest hour in sports <laughs> as you catch us up with everything going on in the world. And then again, you attend half of these events too, so we get the behind the scenes. Um, Ira, we have an absolutely fantastic interview today. One of the, my favorites that we've ever done. Um, partially because I'm a broadcast. And the guy we interviewed is uh, on the Mount Rushmore of broadcasters. He really is the best hockey announcer of all time and arguably one of the greatest to ever do it across any sport. Doc Emmerich is going to join us on Iron Sports. I think it's a hockey broadcaster. I think he's Mount Everest. Like yeah. he is the mountain. Oh, and, that, there's, and anybody who's ever watched a hockey uh, a game ever, he's the one who's been broadcasting and how many finals has he's done, Olympics, everything. I mean, his top 10 a uh, top 100 probably is better than anything else. Yeah. And else. It's just an amazing. It was like we did this. We did this interview about a month ago mm-hmm. and about his book. And it was just a great interview. The stories he tells. It's just even if you don't like hockey, please listen to this interview. It's a great interview. Well, speaking of not liking hockey, it's, you know, a lot of people aren't big hockey fans, but they watch the playoffs. And it's always that time of year where people are watching the hockey playoffs. And he does basically every premier game. And I'll have friends ask me, who is this guy who's doing all these games? He's awesome. Like, yeah, that's Doc Emmerich. He, he's the voice of hockey. He's the voice in the way, like as I'm watching basketball, and I'm, you know how much I criticize Van Gundy yeah. and Mark Jackson no, trying them. to watch. I'm just <laughs> because he literally he is just describing what is happening, and it's and that's a description and just scripting words. Whereas you watch the NBA game, it's like I'm sorry we're interrupting you with a game. I know you guys want to have a personal conversation about whatever mm-hmm. your hotel room, but I'm sorry. But the point is that he's just the descriptions of the games. The Vin Scully, like with baseball, yeah. it's just that it brings it to you. Uh, the insight analysis, it's just a great. And hockey is so hard to call. It's it's the hardest one, I think. And he's the best. Tremendous. And I this interview was great, and he was just so gracious this time. Before we move on, I do have to say, so Doug Plagans, he's the uh, radio play-by-play guy for the Florida Panthers. We've had him here on Iron Sports. I'm driving yesterday, or last week, home from the show, and uh, the Panthers score a um, an overtime winner from Jonathan Huberdeau. And Doug Plagans says this, Ira. Chocolate, peanut butter, cookie dough, scoop, there it is. Panthers win it in overtime. And I thought that was the the funniest thing. So topical with the funny Geico commercial right now. I had to throw that in, and hopefully uh, Doug Blagan is listening. I love that call. Uh, I run sports, True Oldies channel. The NFL always keeps us busy with storylines. And we talked about on this show that we thought it was a lot of puffery of Chicago Bears might be interested in Carson Wentz. Well, Carson Wentz is moving. Going to rejoin his former offensive coordinator and Frank Reich. Here's a damning and alarming stat, Ira. Every quarterback drafted in the first round from 2009 till 2016 is no longer with the team that drafted them. That is just insane to think about. And, Wentz was and the how last many one. players is that? 22. So I- 0 for 22 from with Matt Stafford and Carson Wentz both moving in the past month. That is just... It's a, it's insane how hard it is to hit on these guys, right? I mean, and it and they thought they had it with Wentz. I mean, Philadelphia yeah. they called him Wentzylvania, and they drafted him <laughs> out of, drafted him out of North Dakota State, 2016. Had a great rookie year in 2017. He played 13 games. 33 touchdowns, seven interceptions. He gets hurt, and then Nick Foles leads him to the Super Bowl. Next year, he comes back. Had a, had a very good year, 21 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Got hurt again, and Foles has a playoff win, just barely losing to the Saints that following year. Then he signs a four-year contract for $128 million. They let Nick Foles go down to Jacksonville, and so now it's just Wentz's team. And then 2019... 
it wasn't that bad. He was 27 touchdowns, seven interceptions, nine and seven record, but you could start seeing some frustration with him. He stayed healthy during the year, but didn't play that great. But 2020, then they, then they draft surprisingly Jalen Hurts in the second round mm-hmm. from Oklahoma. And then in 2020, complete disaster, three, eight and one, 16 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. He was benched. He, he supposedly went two months without talking to his head coach, which is, seems impossible to think. Yeah. You cannot talk to your head coach in the middle of a season for two months when you're the quarterback and Hurts is brought in. He's but whatever total mess at the end of the season they fire Doug Peterson the coach are thinking they're doing that to keep Wentz but then clearly it's deeper than that they get that's what everyone thought now they get rid of Wentz and Wentz goes to Frank Reich who was when he was doing the 33 touchdowns and said interceptions he was the offensive coordinator Philadelphia he knows how to work with him and the Colts they're what what would like what happened to the Colts quarterback Rivers for Philip Rivers retires they have no besides Jacoby Brissett they were looking for a quarterback he's the perfect fit for that system they have a great offensive line they have T.Y. Hilton Michael Pittman as wide receiver now Michael Pittman wears number 11 and so does Wentz, but he's not giving it up. Unlike we talked about Tom Brady yeah, getting he's the He's a rookie, too. A rookie's on <laughs> to give up his jersey for you. And you have Jonathan Taylor at running back, a great defense. I mean, if, if, if Wentz is Wensylvania, back to that type of player, then the Colts are one of the favorites with the Chiefs and everyone else to go in the Bills to, to make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, but in the trade was interesting. It was traded for a third. People announced initially it was traded for a third-round pick and then a second-round pick next year. But it's really, if the Colts just make the, the playoffs, it's a first-round pick. Yeah. I think so, he has to do, start 75% of the 75% snaps. of games, yeah. they make the playoffs. So it's a third and a first, which I think is fair. Um, but Philadelphia has to take a cap hit of $33 million. Like, well, what does a cap hit mean? It means is that in these playoff, these quarterback contracts, they're given uh, signing bonuses. So unless the player pays back the signing bonuses, which they never do, of course, you know, that, that goes on that you spread the signing bonus over the years of the contract. So all the signing bonuses of that four-year $128 million contract he signed now is all due that one year. So they have to play it. But still, the Colts are paying his contract for the next two years at like 30 million plus but that's what they intended to do anyway so it's really a good deal for the Colts I, I think it was a situation that I I it is weird that the Eagles are they decided to make this trade like they couldn't work I think in the locker room he just it seemed like every all the rumors one of those things we hear about the rumors the rumors are true he probably did not get along with people in the locker room and certainly there's dysfunction in, in the Eagles but I just don't know if Jalen I don't know if they're sold with going with Jalen Hurts as a quarterback. They're so not. this is the uh, the weird thing to me about this whole scenario, Ira. So you bring in Nick Sirianni, who is the offensive coordinator for Frank Reich, who's worked with Carson Wentz before. The theory must have been, well, we don't have Frank Reich, but maybe Nick Sirianni can get something out of Carson Wentz. Then a week later, you trade Carson Wentz. So now you have a coach that you may not have brought in for the job that he's going to be doing. He's not committed to Jalen Hurts. So you're probably drafting a quarterback in the first round again this year. This could set – I mean, granted, you got some picks. You got rid of the contract somewhat. But this could be setting the Eagles back five years anyway. Right. This is a, a very risky move for the Eagles. And it's like one of those things where they won the Super Bowl three years ago. And thinking, that was great. you got to build on that. They, they, I don't think I've ever seen a team – I mean, even Tampa Bay, when they won the Super Bowl, never imploded like this. This is just a complete implosion from winning a Super Bowl. And uh, But we'll see. At least and now we know the, the Colts domino. Like, we're talking about the quarterback dominoes or mm-hmm. things that have to be. Now we know who the Colts quarterback is. We know who Detroit's quarterback is. We know who the Rams quarterback is. It's starting to, to click off then. We'll do the quarterback carousel in one second. But looking back, and you know, it's, I gave that stat about the draft. The 2016 draft now, kind of not panning out, at least for the teams that drafted these guys. Yeah, I mean, Wentz was uh, Wentz went number two, Goff went number one, but then Paxton Lynch went to Denver. He's not playing. Christian Hackenberg, I don't think he's played yeah, in the last three good. years. From And Jacoby Brissett's a backup. Cody Kessler was a number three pick. Connor Cook, a number four pick to the Raiders. And Dak, I mean, of course, the best one is a number four in the fourth round, Dak Prescott to Dallas. Yeah. So very weird round. So we talk about next year, we're going to talk about all these five quarterbacks for this next draft, and maybe one or two. Oh, Trevor Lawrence is not is going to work out, but maybe just one other quarterback could work out from this. So I go in to every season after things line up and I'm usually like okay there's going to be maybe three four teams that really need quarterbacks going into the draft this year there's so much uncertainty we really don't know where any of these dominoes are going to fall Ira you've got some of your theories on what's going to happen well just a couple of theories I think Washington desperately needs a quarterback um, they they've have, got a defense and they have a great defense and I think they have a team that potentially could win the division now that they're thinking our defense is so good <laughs> I, 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 the rumor I have Ryan Fitzpatrick I'm a big fan of Ryan Fitzpatrick I think he's great I think he didn't get the I think I really think they should have kept him playing here this whole year in Miami. They would have uh, gone further in the, the playoffs. Uh, I really think it's a great move if Ryan Fitzpatrick can go to the Redskins. That makes sense. That, that's just a rumor. It has not happened. And then the Patriots, 
it's either going to be Jimmy Garoppolo from the 49ers in a trade, but it could be a humongous trade. Remember, he was drafted by the Patriots and trained there for four years and behind Brady, and then there was a whole scandal that he was pushed the rumors, out. Yeah. The rumors is that he that they, Brady said, you got to trade him, I don't want him. But there's no way they could have paid both Garoppolo and Brady, so they had to trade him or get rid of Brady. But then, uh, so it's either going to be uh, Jimmy G or Marcus Marietta, who was a number two pick, uh, two overall pick. He's only 27 years old, who was the starting quarterback for the Titans for five years, went to the Raiders as a backup last year and uh, but look good in small doses. Good small, and I think he would seem to be fitting well with what he's sort of the younger and more athletic version of Carson Wentz of uh, Cam Newton uh, with New England. So that to me, yeah, like it's does Bill Belichick want to keep doing what he's doing and just get an upgraded model, or does he? look at the cam experiment and say, I don't want any part of this. So that's what's going to be the tough part uh, for me, Ira. But I'm really looking forward to how these things fall as we move on. Yeah, and then Dak Prescott might sign for Dallas. We'll see if he signs the the franchise tender or meaning that he'll sign just a one-year deal or he'll sign a three-year deal. That'll get done this week. Drew Brees is probably going to retire this week and Ben Rotzenberger is going to restructure his contract and stay with the Steelers. So I think those are some quarterback dominant things that I'm looking at happening just this week. I I think most of those are going to happen. You being our resident Steeler fan, I keep hearing national media people say, well, they should just cut Ben. Be done with it. Not only is that not the Steeler way and it's not going to happen, that leaves you with nothing. So you might as well roll him out there. What, what's the worst that can happen? You go 5-11 and 11, you have a decent draft pick? I, I, I think there's no chance that he gets cut. I want to, I'll go down with the ship with Ben. I love him. I just have heard time almost 20 years of rooting for the Ben Rotzenberger. I, I, would, I want him as my quarterback. That's what it is. Like, and he didn't look awful in a lot of those he games. So at the end he, of the season, he was a little rough. We were 11-0. and 0. He came across. He was off elbow surgery. Remember the previous yeah. year? I thought he was throwing great. I just think it just their offensive line had injuries. Uh, it, they just had some just injuries in the offensive line. And I'm telling you, the drops from the wide receivers were horrendous. I've never seen a team no. drop so many balls in, in my life. So, But no, I hope Ben comes back, and I don't care what the national media says. And me neither. 714, I run Sports Trueoldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Like you said, Ira, you've been getting up super early, and it's all because of the Australian Open. You know, the Australian Open is interesting. It it's, it's, wasn't considered even a ma- – it was a major years and years ago, and then for years – the, uh, nobody went there. Like Jimmy Connors, in one of the greatest American tennis players of all time, in 22 years, only played there two times. Chris Everett only played there three times over when she was ranked number one in the world. Macron only five times. But in 1987, they fixed it up, and now it is the by far. They have three retractable roof stadiums. It's beautiful. It's nice. It's fantastic. The player, all the players go to. So now it's considered a major. So it's sort of unfair. Some of the old time players are like, you know, it's not fair. You're counting this as a major. We didn't play in it. We mm. didn't even play in this tournament because we should get a it, retroactive yeah, major. It's like we got to pick out of another. <laughs> major and that's but uh th- there was quarantine restrictions uh so the players had to fly over there you know hubert hercos who came and then fly mm-hmm. for two weeks they went there and just could like work out in their hotel room and then they went and played and then but then the fans were there half like half fans uh percent fans and then they removed the fans because they were for a five week because there was some covid it- outbreak so that for five days you didn't have fans but then for the finals you did have 50 percent of the stadium with fans so that made the tournament sort of feel like sort of normal but uh the men's draw was that was the exciting part in terms of what happened with Djokovic and the idea that Djokovic. This is we are seeing the goat debate, like the whole Brady Mahomes thing. It's mm-hmm. like if Brady Mahomes were the same age and they were competing because and there was three of them. And there's three of them exactly. <laughs> and uh, and this was supposed to be the first half of the draw was supposed to be Joker, Djokovic, and Theme. And Theme, the U.S. Open winner, got crushed in the round of sixteen by Dimitrov. And uh, then Dimitrov lost to a qualifier who you talked about how it's like when he when he goes against Djokovic in the quarters it was like a hundred. To one or some crazy, three hundred thirty to one. Yeah, he was the hundred and fourteenth ranked player in the world as a qualifier, and uh, Djokovic easily beat him and made it to the finals. Uh, after you know, he beat Zarev and then he in the finals, but then the bottom half of the draw, that's one was supposed to be Nadal versus uh, Denis Medvedev. And remember, Medvedev is a person in the finals last year, the US Open, who played that great match against Nadal mm-hmm. in five sets. Medvedev played in the finals against. Uh, he's so he's been in the Grand Slams, been in this, and and he was j- just beating everybody, playing great. Uh, he beat the last American in the round of 16, Mackenzie McDonald, uh, in the round of 16. And then he beat this um, Rublev, who's also from Russia. And he's <laughs> they're friends, and he's beat them 5-0. Not, not the matches have never been close, even though Rublev is, is very good. And then what happened is that Titsipas got very lucky because Nadal had to play a match 
Uh, and then Titsipas was give a walkover. This bear, I hate these walkovers where someone wins and decides not to play. Could you imagine if the NFL playoffs had a team like, oh, we're too hurt, so we're not going to play in the middle of a round and give someone a bye mm-hmm. week? So Titsipas had a bye <laughs> week. Nadal had to play, and then he had to play the next day. And Titsipas, he's killing Titsipas. First two sets, 6-2, six, 6-3. Six, and then he got tired. Can you believe Nadal got tired? And then Titsipas beat Nadal, but then Medvedev just just destroyed Titsipas. So it was Medvedev and Djokovic in the finals. And they the odds were even for this. And even though and Medvedev had beat That's Djokovic, surprising. Yeah, four even. times. But Medvedev, it just shows you how well Medvedev has been playing. It was just beating everyone three and two. And the ground strokes were tremendous. And he beat Djokovic in Cincinnati two years ago in the finals and, and just looked great at that. Now, Djokovic's 33, Medvedev's 25. And uh, Medvedev had won 20 matches in a row. First set comes up there. This is 3.30 in the morning. I'm up. I'm watching. I'm excited. I can't wait. Joker goes up 3-0. Then Medvedev breaks back. And then at 5-6, it was going to a tiebreaker. But Joker broke Medvedev and then ended up uh, you know, winning that first set 7-5. And Medvedev's style, I thought, was just you know, stand back there, control the points, just, just don't miss. But Djokovic is... He's someone who I watched him the entire tournament, and when he just, you could put the greatest player in the world, he just raises his game. Like, how are you going to play? I'm going to play better than you. And it just like every shot, and Medvedev just started getting frustrated because Medvedev's used to hitting like four or five great shots, winning the point. He hit four or five great shots, and Djokovic's still in the points. And Djokovic was playing him closer, forcing Medvedev back when they're doing these rallies, and Medvedev was afraid to come to the net. Like, Djokovic would do the drop shots, do whatever, and Medvedev didn't want to come in, he'd hit, and he just controlled those, controls those points. And the second set, um, he was. Joker was broken like the first game, but then he broke him right back. And then there were some funny points. They were, they were, it was like 3 1, and this fan started talking, like screaming, and they were totally drunk clearly drunk <laughs> and it was so loud because there was not many fans there and they had to like start the point over again because it was just during the entire point and they took the fan out and then at 5-2 Medvedev starts going crazy he broke his racket um, and this is, reminds me of Djokovic against US Open when he hit the ball against the backstop because people were hitting balls breaking rackets everything no one was getting disqualified only Djokovic got disqualified by the US Open but he, he started his they showed his girlfriend in the stands like telling him to calm down like was so mad not at him good. and he was and then the third set so he loses the, the the second set, 6-2. And then at, uh, in the third set, he was just like, if you ever go to the place and you see the guy who like wants to hit his first serve as hard as he can with no second serve, that's what he's doing. He's just <laughs> serving two first serves. He was trying to hit the ball as hard as he possibly can. And Djokovic is the worst player to try that strategy because Djokovic just said, okay, you're going to make mistakes. I'm going to hit anything. You're going to ball 200 miles an hour. I'm going to get back to you. <laughs> and Djokovic easily won the third set. And it was just, it was great. It was like one of those things where Djokovic just, I mean, Medvedev just gave up. It was just a total give up. And that just shows you how great Djokovic. I mean, he made a top, top player just give up like in that match. And now you're left with Djokovic at 18 titles, Nadal 20, Federer at 20. So you can actually define who's going to win the most majors. And Federer's 39 years old. He's since in 2019, 2020, he's just made one final. I just don't think Federer has anything left. Maybe Wimbledon one more. But Nadal has the French coming up, and he's 34, Djokovic's 33. And then, but if, boy, if, Djokovic could win the French Open, and then he could win Wimbledon US Open. Then he's going to be up 21-20 and probably have this. So the point is, like, they are battling for a GOAT. Like, we don't have to have this idea of, like, is it Brady or McCones or is it Jordan or LeBron or Tiger and Jack? Like, they are playing right now to determine who GOAT is. So I'm excited. This is what this is what what's great about men's tennis and why I want to see that match. And 721, I run sports through all these channels. Doc Emmerich, legendary hockey announcer, join us in just about 10 minutes or so. What's going on with the women, Ira? Because I know this kind of got you peeved, at least what people are saying. <laughs> well, Naomi Osaka had a great win over Serena. Now, this is Osaka's was had going that way, winning three matches. Uh, Serena, of course, has won 23. Margaret Court's record is 24. So everyone considers Serena the GOAT, which she is, um, even though Steffi Graf, I thought, had a tremendous, tremendous career. So one less than there, but I think you could argue with Serena and Graf. But Court's 24 is weird because it was years ago and mo- most of them were won in Australia, but he still wants to get that 24th. But she hasn't won anything since she had her child. She's been in four finals and hasn't won any and he made, mm-hmm. he found close. He's been favored, just hasn't had a situation where it was. Where it was. And Osaka almost got knocked out in the quarter. The, the thing that would help Serena the most was if Osaka would have lost early. She had a, two match points against her, against, against Maruga Russo, and, and won those two match points and winning the match. But in the first set, Serena jumped out 3 nothing, and she ended up losing the first set 6-3. In the second set, Serena was up 2-0 and then ended up losing that set 6-4. And uh, then Osaka played Jen, Jen Brady in the finals. Jen Brady's from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And Osaka won. She beat him three sets in the U.S. Open, which is a great match. But in this one, totally dominated Brady. So then the, the, it's over. Osaka's the champion. Uh, and uh, 
And everyone said, okay, she's the next goat. And I'm like, whoa. Yes, I had four the <laughs> She, like I, I said to you, Sam Darnall was closer to being the goat than Osaka. <laughs> because you're just taking away how great Serena is. Serena at 23 majors. Osaka is 23 years old. She's only won four. In the French Open, she's never gone past the third round. Wimbledon never passed the third round. She doesn't play on clay, doesn't play on uh, grass. And she has like that, almost a Brooks Koepka in terms of she's won four majors, but only three other tournaments. Mm-hmm. When Serena was playing, she was beating she everyone. She won every week. Oh, and it was like Tiger. Oh, and oh, and one, and one. And the only person that would beat Serena would be Venus. Yeah. And it's <laughs> so there's no comparison. Serena would go through these majors. You talk about match points against her. She wouldn't even have break points against her. She'd be winning. I just think it's just when people say that she's the next GOAT, there is, this is not Patrick Mahone's Tom Brady. This is, this is ridiculous. It's, it takes away from the greatness of Serena Williams yeah. to think that Naomi Saka is anywhere in a GOAT conversation. The fact that she's won four majors since she's 20. I mean, Serena had won six majors by the time she was this age. Steph Graf had won 11. So she's also way behind the times to catch up. But uh, the point is, I just felt like it was, I just not like that talk. You know, talk. I mean, we're going to see what Osaka does against the French Open in Wimbledon and see if she can go past the third round. But Serena is great. And I still think Serena is going to get to 24. She looked in great shape at this tournament. She just went and the, and the surface was extremely fast and not to her liking in terms of it was just way too fast to play. So let's switch to golf here on Iron Sports. Um, Ira, you got to feel a little bit bad for Sam Burns. And I, I feel worse for you, though, because you love the Genesis. You go every year and you weren't able to make it this year. Five years in a row. It's so yeah. weird when you watch, go to a tournament every year. Like, I don't, now I go to the Honda so much, I don't watch it on TV. But the Genesis, I got, I watched it on TV. But I could see, I know every hole. Like, I, it's yeah. one of those things where I've been there, walked it a million times. So, and you want to talk about, you watch it on TV, there were no fans. There was nobody anywhere. They didn't even have, like, uh, course, golf course officials. Mm-hmm. I have never seen, they've been playing this back. They had nobody out there. I mean, there was nobody, like, friends or whatever. It was as empty as you possibly can have. And I feel bad for Burns. Shot a 64 and 66. He had a four and five shot lead almost the entire time. And he, up until the 14th hole and on Sunday, he's leading the entire tournament and uh i mean i saw sam at the honda when he played when tiger played in the final round uh and sam played with him and it was always hard because tiger would tee off and then everybody would leave and then sam's <laughs> turn and he's walking around i mean he's ranked highest ranked he was 80th in the world he's from lsu but that was difficulty but this cut at this tournament rory missed the cut i mean this was this genesis is a huge show it's tiger's tournament it pays like 11 million it's one of the biggest highest paying tournaments uh bryson dechambeau missed the cut justin thomas missed the cut and rory missed the cut so you have those three big guys and Spieth played well this tournament. He shot a 60, what, a 64, 65. And he was in the in the mix there. And then on Saturday, it got very windy. And he got like three bogeys in a row. And he still finished, I think it was 15th for the tournament. So he had two top fives. But Spieth is back now, at least making cuts, which is important to people who are big Jordan Spieth fans. Um, but, you know, going at the end of the third round, Burns was at nine under. And Dustin Johnson at seven under. Max Homa's at seven under. And Tony Finau's at five. And you're like thinking... We're coming to Sunday. Dustin Johnson. I mean, he was you a thought heavy Johnson's favorite. Gonna come I mean, on. <laughs> bet, bet the house on Dustin Johnson because he had won this tournament. Um, he had won this tournament uh, three years ago by five strokes. Uh, but the story was Max Homa because he's from Los Angeles. He grew up going to this tournament every year. He loved it. Loves Tiger Woods. Uh, he's 30 years old. He won the Division One division in 2013 was the NC Division One winner. But by 2017, he was out of the course. He 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 missed. He didn't make a cut in like seven. Two cuts at 17 events and then he had to go back to the minor league tour work his way back he won wells fargo last year but what a great i mean this is his course and he loved it and he wanted to win and then tony finau the story about him 31 years old he won in 2016 he's now been he's ranked 13th in the world he's been in the top five 21 times and not one mm-hmm. i mean this guy cannot win a tournament and in the majors 11 majors since 2018 seven times in the top 10 but uh it ended up in the fourth round it was like um at the ninth hole uh, Dustin Johnson bogeyed, Burns bogeyed, birdied, and he had like still a two-shot lead, and it seemed like he was going to cruise, like Burns could hold on, like could you hold on? But then by 14, he started, he bogeyed on 12, bogeyed on 14, and and suddenly by when you got down to like the 16th hole, it was like Burns at 11, home at 11, and Finau at 11, and then Burns bogeyed again. Uh, they were each one stroke guys. So Finau was like one hole ahead of Homa, and Homa was ahead one one uh, uh, hole ahead of Burns. But it was like one of those situations where you go in and and Finau birdied seventeen is a par five, but it easily birdied. You can almost eagle seventeen because I've been there so many times to see you have a good chance. But Finau birdied that and then parted, so he goes in with a twelve. Homa birdied uh, twelve and then a seventeen, and then on eighteen he had a three foot putt to win the tournament. 
and he missed it. So he missed this putt, mm-hmm. sends it, and Burns had bogeyed, kept bogeying, so he finished in third. But they go to the, the extra to playoff holes. First playoffs hold, Homa hits it right behind a tree. Like the worst shot you possibly can see. Finau is left with like a five-foot putt to win it on that hole. He misses the five-foot putt. Uh, they go to the second playoff hole, and that's where Homa putt made, and Finau had a chance and missed it, and Homa parred. Actually, Homa, I think Finau bogeyed the hole, mm-hmm. and Homa was able with a par. Yeah, he's giving it away. Was, was able. It was like a weird ending. As they both, nobody was making it. Nobody won. <laughs> nobody made a putt to yeah, win this tournament. like backing into the playoffs. So <laughs> that was what. So it was like, so Homa won, but it's a great story. He's like, I love this tournament. I just want grew up it was like uh, i'm la i love everything about la so it's nice it was a it was nice about that but the key i think one of the big things was the the tiger woods uh they asked him they were tiger came on and, and gave a talk it was like being interviewed and at first he said i mean broke some you know they're asking about the tournament like what's going on with the tournament what's happening like nobody cares no. like <laughs> they go tiger what are you doing like are you when are you playing golf again and he's like i haven't swung a golf club like i'm getting an mri i haven't done any swinging which means there's no way he's going to play in the Masters. No. I mean, Jim Nance says, are you going to play in the Masters? He goes, we'll see. The Masters is two months away. You're not, you haven't swung a golf club. How are you going to play in months? It's impossible. No, it, it's going to be tough to do. Did you know that Tony Finau is the cousin of Jabari Parker and Haloti Nata? Oh, that's uh, impressive genes in yes, that family. Definitely, that is definitely. amazing. I, I didn't know that. Uh, but, yeah, I feel bad for Tony. They just can't close these out. And we saw the, the issues basically giving a tournament away when it could have been much more competitive. He's someone who, like, if you're going to bet on him, bet him in the top five. Win, but play, don't, show, uh, win, play, show. Do not <laughs> bet on him to win. I mean, it is unbelievable. But you see in this tournament, he had his chance to win. And if you go back and look at the other tournaments, he's lost the same situation. Even in the Masters. Remember that Masters one where, he had the, where, where the Tiger won? He hit the ball in the water on that. So he had, his, I mean, he, in the chances where he's had, he's actually blown these tournaments. He's put himself in the position, just can't close it out. And of course, that's what makes these elite golfers great to win and close out these tournaments. Absolutely, and it's what makes you fear the Dustin Johnsons, the Brooks Kepka of the world. When they're four strokes off, you're afraid of them going into Sunday. Uh, let's switch to the NBA quick. And the Heat, you thought we're going to have a really tough week, but it's going a little better than we anticipated. Well, yeah, they won on Wednesday, they lost against uh, the Clippers uh, on Monday night, and then they beat Sacramento. On Wednesday and then on uh, sun- Saturday night or Sunday night, I keep getting my dates with all the days getting up at three thirty. I get confused. They play the Lakers without Anthony Davis, without Schroeder. Rematch of the NBA Finals last year. Kendrick Nunn is playing great for the Lakers for the Heat. I mean, he is just. I mean, remember at the, during the playoffs last year, he sort of wasn't even playing at all. But he came back and now without with Drogic out, he's had some good games. He had twenty seven points. Butler at twenty four, uh, and they were up four going into the fourth. How about the Heat scored fifteen points in the fourth quarter and still win the game? The Lakers only scored seventeen. I mean, with two forty nine left in the game, uh, it was like ninety two eighty nine, and it was like weird. LeBron did not take a shot in the final three minutes of the game. It was just they, all the Lakers were shooting, and LeBron played great, and he's played MVP this year. But it's like he's trying to get everyone else involved in shooting, and yet Wesley Matthews missed, and everything missed. And then at the end of the game, their Heat were up by two. Iguodala inbounds the ball, and LeBron stole the ball, and he had a chance. He should have just gone up and dunked it, but he passed it to Caruso, who misses a three to win the game. But it was very exciting game. It was great to see the Heat, and it just shows you. I think if the Heat were healthy last year, I think they. I've always said this. Everyone says you're crazy. I thought that he would have made that series like a seven-game series if they would have stayed healthy, Drogic healthy, out of bio healthy. They had everything moving in the right direction. Uh, you know, I was really high on that Heat team last year. Didn't quite get it done. Brooklyn, much to your chagrin, actually playing pretty good. <laughs> they won six in a <laughs> row, but trust me, I've stayed and watched these games. Kyrie, this game against the Clippers, it, it, Kyrie in the fourth quarter was two for nine. He's shooting all the time. He's not Durant's out and not playing, but the fact is he's not, I mean, he is just it's just ridiculous. He got so lucky to win against the Clipper game. Uh, DeAndre Jordan tipped the ball in. That I don't know how he tipped it in. And then when Kawhi had a chance to win the game or actually tie the game at the end, they called a charging foul, which was ridiculous when Harden was on him, which can you not believe that Harden pushed? You know, it's funny. Kawhi going against Harden for a play, and Harden was playing defense. But look, everyone's all on the Brooklyn Nets. They all think he's great. Just wait. It's not going to work out. Trust me. The Nets are not making the NBA Finals. <laughs> Let's go NCAA quick. Your prediction, jeez, uh, two months ago on this show that uh, Gonzaga would not lose a game is looking pretty good. They win every game. They win by 22 and 40 this week. Of course, they're playing poor teams, but Suggs, 
Kisper, Timmy, Hawaii, and Nemhart, best starting five. They will all be in the NBA. They'll all be first-round draft picks. Um, this is the this Gonzaga team is not going to lose. They're great. They're three-point shooting. They have all those players I mentioned. They're, they all shoot above 35% from the three. They've already beat Kansas, Auburn, West Virginia, Iowa, and Virginia this year. They have their wins. This is just winning their conferences. Baylor hasn't played. I mean, the only team that could beat them is Baylor. Baylor hasn't played in three weeks because of COVID restrictions. But the big game this week was Michigan played Ohio State. How about they have met 185 times the rivalry between Michigan and Ohio State. They never met when they've been in the top five until this Sunday when Michigan beat Ohio State 92-87. So uh, we're getting ready for the tournament in a few weeks. They're gonna. It'll be interesting. Teams like Kentucky, eight and thirteen, aren't going to be in. Duke is barely trying to get in at ten and eight. Indiana, twelve and ten, is trying to stay. And Michigan State is eleven and nine. You have a lot of big names that aren't going to be in this tournament. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still excited. I'm excited to see how great Gonzaga is because I think they are the perfect team. The world's newest uh, NASCAR and racing fan is Ira. <laughs> Ira, uh, tell us about what's going on. Well, it was the Daytona Road Course, so they ran at Daytona, the oval, but the road course they put in the middle, and it was like exciting because there are some drivers that are great road course drivers, like Chase Elliott, who actually. Won the cup last year, but it was like one of those races that by the end of the race, all the road course drivers have been knocked out. And Tony Logano, Joey Logano, who was leading Daytona 500 in the same situation the previous week, he's leading the road course race by four seconds with five laps to go. And uh, Bell was able to catch him. It was like one of those things out of the movies where he's like, Logano's brakes, you could see, were like on fire. And Christopher Bell was able to catch up to him and pass him right in the, in the final lap. So Bell, Logano, Hamlin uh, was how it finished. And then this week they're playing, they're at, home, at Homestead back at the Oval Course. But it was, I, I I like the road courses because there's no drafting. You're actually driving the court. There's a lot of passing, very much like the Formula One. Um, what about um, boxing? Because this is uh, something that we don't even realize is going on, right? <laughs> I tried to get somebody. So Camelo Alvarez is considered the number one, number two pound-for-pound fighter in the world. He's fighting at the Hard Rock uh, Stadium in, in this Saturday. Nobody is talking about this all. Now, he is favored against Avni Yildirim, who hasn't fought in three years or two years. This is crazy. They're even fighting. And he is, Alvarez is a 5,000 to 100 favorite. I've never seen this in my life. Meaning that. Minus 5,000. Well, you have to bet. If you bet $100 on Kamala Alvarez, the most you can win is $2. I mean, this is, and, but I go and I look at it and I went online and said, I wonder about tickets and they price these tickets so high. There's no, they haven't sold a ticket. Like I haven't seen a ticket available for this. It was the craziest thing in the world. But I mean, it's a chance to see Alvarez fight. But there's no way this fight goes more than two. Like it, also, Alvarini, your, your Deerham's problem is he's, he's a tall fighter and he goes forward. And Alvarez is known to just destroy tall fighters because he goes to the body. <laughs> like this should be over and around. So it's going to be interesting. Like I still might go to it because I want to see Alvarez fight in person. But it's like one of those things where it's just weird that in Miami we're going to have an outdoor side stadium. It could be so cool to have that. But no one's going to be at it. All right. You're listening to Iron Sports. Let's get to Doc Emmerich. You're listening to Iron Sports. It's time to bring in the legend, Michael Doc Emmerich, recently retired NHL broadcaster, author of Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. And Doc, thank you so much for taking some time out to join us today. Um, I, first and foremost, I just have to thank you for that. You had an amazing career, and I want to thank you for, for truly being the voice of hockey throughout my entire life. I mean, I grew up listening to you, and it's an honor to have you here. Ira, it's wonderful to talk to you, too. Um, it makes me sound a little ancient, but, you know, frankly, I am. So I'm glad to have been uh, a part of your hockey life anyway. And uh, it's great to talk to you today. And I can only imagine uh, what some of the highlights of your hockey life might have been or your football life or your baseball life. But I'm glad to have been a part of one sport. Well, Doc, I'm, I'm born in 1983, and I'm a Ranger fan. So I say the highlight of my life is Matteau, Matteau, Matteau. But, um, <laughs> yes, you were 11 at the time, yes. weren't you? <laughs> yeah, and that was, that's what started my love of, of this great game. But I, I want to start down here in South Florida with the Panthers. Um, this team seems to be extremely talented, and but we see them fall short more often than not. What do you think is the missing special sauce for the Panthers to take them to the next level? Randy Moeller, he's a really good friend of the show. I promise I won't tell him anything that you say. <laughs> no, Randy would probably have the recipe more than I would. I think stability has been the thing. Um, you know, there there was one one well-meaning uh, decision that they made so long ago. They thought in going out to sunrise that they needed someone to fill the seats, and that that was Pavel Bury. Yeah, and as it turned out, it didn't work, and <laughs> they have been sputtering since trying to get this to work and i think uh 
probably the the start of everything that has been good was the bringing in of, of Joel Quenville because you need some strength and you need someone who has hockey sense and you need a coordination between coach and general manager, which I think now has taken place. But as the Red Wings are finding out after 25 straight years of making the playoffs, <laughs> and as the Blackhawks are about to find out after having not won a series since they defeated Tampa Bay for the Cup in 2015, this is a long stretch after you finally decide that it's time to start from square one. So I wish I could tell you this is going to be quick, but it's not. (laughs) But the good thing is that it is in place, and at least you have solid people that that are now going to be in place to do this. And some of the parts are there, but not all. And you look at a very difficult division. Are the Panthers better than Boston? Are they better than Tampa? Are they better than Toronto? Um, so in the way that the current structure is set up, they've got to get past those three yeah. minimum to make the playoffs. And that's difficult. And that's the same question that they would ask in Detroit right now. Are they better than those three? And the answer is no. So it is a haul. And I wish I could give you a rosier picture. <laughs> but the good thing is that you have, uh, you have a credible management team and you have a Hall of Fame coach. And that is a start. But they are not the guys that score the goals. They can make the decisions as to who are out there. But it's going to take a while. So, Sorry. <laughs> we appreciate the honesty. Um, no, it's, but one of the great things about hockey is the parity. And, and, you know, one or two moves, they could very well be in the Stanley Cup a year or two from now. Who's a team you think, Doc, that wasn't on many people's radars this year, but it's going to surprise everyone next season? Well, I would have said Columbus before, but they're not a surprise anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that, that would have happened two years ago. And I think they're still going to be a surprise team uh, this year. I think that are they going to win the Metropolitan? No, I think uh, in the regular season, I think Washington will. And I think Boston will win the regular season in the Atlantic. But uh, if I were to pick a team that might not be on people's radar in South Florida, only because they don't see them a lot because they play so late at night, I think Colorado could win the whole thing, although the tournament in the NHL is an open tournament and you roll the dice and anybody could win. Any one of the 24 teams that made it last August could win. Uh, The open tournament is hard to predict, but the regular season is a little easier. And I like Colorado and Edmonton out west. Those are the teams that I like. But in terms of a sneak attack, if you haven't paid attention to Colorado, it's worth paying attention to. So if it's off South Florida radar, get it on your radar because the abs are terrific. Oh, trust me, Doc. I talk about that top line of the abs all the time. Probably the most exciting um, in all of hockey. So I'm I'm rooting for them every night. They they make it look fun out there. Um, Before I turn it over, you know, We've seen some number one overall picks come out and excel just absolutely immediately. Others, it takes them a while to find their groove if they ever find it. What are you expecting from Alexi Lafreniere um, right out of the gate in the NHL? It's very hard, isn't it? Uh, yeah. when, you, when you don't have somebody that is, uh, that is immediately like, like an Ovechkin and a Crosby where you, where you don't know whether this is going to be the next 87 or the next eight, uh, we don't know. I think he's going to be given the greatest chance to succeed because he's on a stronger Rangers team yeah. than what he would have been a couple of years ago. It's a revamped team, and I think it's going to be a stronger team. And they might have a chance to make the playoffs. You size them up in their division, whether they are better than the teams that are above them, and you could make an argument for the fact, especially if this season becomes shortened, uh, and it looks today here in December that it might be a shortened season, then that that levels the playing field for some of the lesser teams or the teams that weren't as strong last year. Um, and he's going to be surrounded by better players. So will this make him look better? I don't know if it worked for Capo Caco that much, but we're talking about a first overall that they got. Um, it's, it's very difficult for me to tell you because I don't know how he's going to fit in and how he's going to excel. We knew with uh, the likes of Crosby and we knew with the likes of Ovechkin that, that it was going to be outstanding, but we don't know in this case. At least I don't. And sadly, 
I'm the one you chose for a guest today. <laughs> I'm not the one that can answer your question definitively with an exclamation point. I've got a hedge because I don't know. Doc, this is Ira. Um, you were talking, Mike was a little bit younger than me, so I grew up in, in outside Pittsburgh. So I'm familiar with in terms of your Pittsburgh passion. Um, but it's interesting that you grew up in LaFontaine, Indiana, basketball crazy town, listening to the Pirates, being a Pirate. But on December 10th, 1960, you went to a hockey game that transforms your entire life, which is almost, I think, the 60th anniversary of that game is coming up. So I hear this from so many hockey fans, and myself included, about that first game and how that changed them when they are in the arena. So maybe talk about that for a second. Yeah, I, I spoke yesterday um, uh, with Con Madigan, who played in that game. Oh my uh, he and I are still friends, and isn't it odd that a guy that played in that game and had no idea who you are uh, it's an honor for me to still know this guy who is still the youngest rookie ever to play in an NHL game at age 38 as a defenseman or as a forward. Uh, and here, here he is years later, and we still chat once another, and we laugh about him scoring a goal in that game and skating around the ice backwards. But <laughs> it is the same thing that is portrayed in the book that I often ask first-year journalism students or whenever I get a chance to visit a class in person or or vicariously, as I often do now, to recall the first major event they ever saw in their life that was a sporting event. And so I will very quickly tell you that uh, when I walked up the ramp, you could not see the ice surface because of the enormity of the Coliseum, which once housed an NBA team called the Pistons before they moved to Detroit. So you're going up these ramps, and you still can't see the inside of the arena until you walk to the top of one ramp, go into a concourse, go up a set of stairs, and then you see the arena, the interior. And that's when you see the ice that is so white and so enormous, it seems to you. And the teams are warming up, and Muskegon is in uniforms that seem so blue under the bright lights that seem so bright. And Fort Wayne skates out, and you hear the organ play the, the Comets fight song, which that year was buckled down when Saki, of all things. It was a long time ago. And they're wearing white and orange and black, which uh, later would be stolen, those colors, by the Flyers seven years later. And, and then you, you see collisions and you see fights. And I didn't understand the rules, and I didn't understand why the Zamboni didn't grind up the red and the blue lines and deposit those in the bin behind too but there was an awful lot i didn't understand but i sure was taken by the speed of the game and the collisions and the fights and it was transforming so if we had time i would ask both of you about your first experience and invariably what i have found is that when people describe that they describe it in great detail they often remember the score they certainly remember who won and who the teams were, and invariably they recount it with a smile on their face. And then I ask them, because at that point I've probably done this for 35 or 40 years at the time that I asked them to tell me this, multiply that times 35 or 40 years, and I still have a smile on my face, and don't think twice about getting into this line of work because it's just as good as you think it is. There are going to be days that are going to seem rotten to you, like in any job, but by and large, you're going to be one of the two out of ten that likes their work for the rest of their life, because it is pretty good. It's not 100% good, but no job is, but it's pretty good. <laughs> well, we're talking to Doc Emrick, author of Off Mike. And when I started reading the book, I'm like, oh, he's going to be interviewing Wayne Gretzky and talk about hanging out with Lemieux. But so much of your book is talking about minor league hockey and the Port Huron flags where you started and the Maine Mariners and the stories from minor league hockey. And when we think of great sports movies, the slap shots, the bull Dorums, even Will Ferrell's, I think, best movie, Semi-Pro, it's, it's the minor league aspect of the game. And I just loved how you brought that out in your book. Thank you. Uh, I didn't want to overload it with minor league stories, but um, there is an unpretentiousness about it that makes those stories more entertaining. <laughs> the NHL stories in the Olympics tend to come later on in the book, and uh, there was a danger in my mind of thinking that, that people that had spent their lives around major league hockey would be turned off by the 
minor league stories earlier in the book, and I had hoped that wasn't the case. But um, I always said if I ever wrote a book that the longest chapters would be the early ones because um, the fact that the minor leagues are less pretentious and they make more mistakes. You're pretty sophisticated and pretty corporate by the time that marketing departments in the NHL get a hold of things. And so not many real loud mistakes are made, but there were plenty of them uh, when I was coming through the seven years of the minors. <laughs> the one story I loved was the fact that you actually, they probably should have brought you back for Meghan Markle and Prince Harry because you broadcast a wedding during a hockey game. And I thought that story was cute. I don't want to give all the stories, but maybe just replay that one a little bit. Well, we rode into uh, Des Moines, Iowa, a 14-hour bus ride the day before, and then you played two games because it was so far. You played Friday and Saturday in Des Moines. There was a great competition with girls basketball on Friday night downtown at the Veterans Coliseum. They'd get 10,000 people to watch girls basketball, but the Capitals, a professional IHL team, would do well on Saturday, but not on Friday. So they had to promote. They would normally get 1,500 for their games on Friday because of the sports competition in Des Moines. And the PR guy uh, came to me that morning and said, uh, the first intermission is going to be delayed by 10 minutes tonight because we're going to have a wedding on the ice. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. Uh, so at the end of the first period, our Port Huron players went to the dressing room and the Des Moines players uh, stayed out on the ice, and they stood on either side of this long white mat, which was rolled out 90 feet from the end boards all the way to the checkered red line. And there was another mat rolled out along the red line, and the groom and the minister walked out on that. And the bride walked out on this long mat, and the players, who had already played one period, remember, and you know what wet hockey equipment tends to smell like. <laughs> so they are standing on either side of this mat, holding their hockey sticks, up with the blades touching to form an arch and it is uh, under this arch of hockey sticks um, perhaps trying to not concentrate on smelling that this young lady walks out to her destiny at center ice and there's a, a, a rather hurried ceremony there because of the time factor and rings are exchanged and kisses are planted and and the groom and the bride lock arms and they head back down this arch of hockey sticks there was a custom in the Midwest at that time of throwing rice at weddings, and the fans there wanted to salute the couple, and it was all done good-naturedly, but they didn't have rice to throw. They had a lot of other things to throw over the, over the chicken wire that was up above the boards. They didn't have plexiglass in Des Moines. And so it all came out, and there was so much debris on the ice as the couple left the ice surface that um, the two maintenance men that worked the games in Des Moines had to detach the two nets and push them around like rakes to scoop all the debris up, and the delay was not 10 minutes, it was 45. But the promotion worked. They had over 2,500 fans there that night. Uh, bottom line is Port Huron won the game, so I guess we had to be happy about that. And don't you think that, I mean, I, I do a lot of comparison between hockey and basketball, and the fact that now basketball, you go from AAU to right to the NBA, it seems like you're even bypassing college at this point where they change the rules. But the whole idea of, of with these athletes in hockey going to the small towns, working your way up, it, it's something that builds in. And I think it gives them appreciation for the game that maybe a lot of these basketball players do not have. When I first went, yeah, you make a good point. When I first went into the American League, it was a Philadelphia Flyers farm team that was being created in Portland, Maine, brand new. And the president of the Flyers, Gil Stein, who later was president of the NHL before Gary Bettman came in as a commissioner of the NHL, Gil was the president of the team in Maine as well. And he always said that there wasn't anyone who wanted to be sent to the minors, but after they had been there, they did appreciate the experience and what they learned there. They wanted to be in the NHL, but they realized that it wasn't a total waste of time to be in the minor leagues. And I, I certainly felt... The last thing I would have ever wanted to do was consider the seven years I spent in the minors as a waste because it wasn't. Not only did I collect stories, but I got in about 600 games uh, there, and that was 600 chances to make a lot of mistakes and not really get taken to task too much for it. And there's a lot of there are a lot of mistakes to make as a player or as a broadcaster in the minors and. The spotlight is not as bright there, and so you get a chance to really learn a lot about your craft and, and learn through making mistakes there. 
I grew up in central Pennsylvania near, near Johnstown, so the Penguins at the time weren't that great. But when I went to school in 1985 at the University of Pennsylvania, I saw the pool the Flyers had on that town. And um, I was there just two, you know, two months, and then Pelly Lindbergh passed away. And just to see the – and you were the broadcaster at the Flyers at that time – just describe the, the enthusiasm the Flyers fans had for that team, those teams during those years. Ed Snyder was a magnificent salesman of hockey, and uh, there was a sportscaster in town named Al Meltzer, you may remember uh-huh, at that yes. time. And at one night on his evening sportscast, he said, this is a football town, it's a baseball town, it's a basketball town, it's not a hockey town, it's a Flyers town. <laughs> and when the Flyers are no longer playing, no one cares about hockey here. And he was absolutely right. And Ed took over the Flyers in 1967, brought them into the city for $2 million, and, and, and made them into something that was a very valuable commodity. And he changed the whole attitude of the Flyers three years later uh, when, through a very dramatic event, his team was getting beaten up by the more physical St. Louis Blues, and he swore it would never happen again. And so his general manager, Keith Allen, started drafting players that were six feet and 190 pounds and not a whole lot less unless they were hugely skilled would he ever pick anyone that uh, that small and so the flyers became behemoths and they became the broad street bullies and that carried through for a long time including the time that you were at penn by that time they had been established for a decade and a half as uh, as delightful thugs for the people <laughs> of philadelphia and as evil violets to the rest of the hockey world, people hated Philadelphia outside of, of, of Flyerstown. But boy, were they ever loved there. And, and the whole philosophy was all it takes to love a Flyer is to see one play if they're in your city or to meet one. And the Flyers were very good about being in the community, too. We're talking to Doc Emmerich. Uh, author of Off Mike, the legendary hockey broadcaster. And as you mentioned, this, this sort of segues in the next topic. You broadcast games for uh, NBC, NBCSN, CBS, ABC, TNT, ESPN, Fox, CSTV, Sports Channel America, Sports Channel, Prism. I mean, I go on and on, and, that, and the title goes, and others. I don't know what others there possibly could be. But you mentioned about when you were trying to – you were you went in from being broadcast when you did the Devils and the Flyers, but also do the national broadcast. So you were a local broadcaster and then a national broadcaster. And I guess that Ed Snyder sometimes didn't like the fact that you tried to have that fairness during your national broadcasting when you're broadcasting the Flyers games. It tends to be uh, when you are doing sports in a one-team town, and if you think about the one-team towns across the country, there is an expectation usually from management, but oftentimes from the fan base, uh, to, uh, to be partial to the home team and actually cheer on the air for them. And, hey, I am a Pirate fan. I am not necessarily a Pittsburgh sports fan, but I am a Pirate fan, and the reason for that was that I grew up in rural Indiana listening to KDKA, and Bob Prince was the announcer, and he cheered for my team. (laughs) And so I understand that. But it was a struggle for me to do that philosophically myself. And so network television was a lot easier for me than being an announcer for the Flyers, where there was not only the expectation on the part of management, but also on the part of the fans that they liked that approach. In New Jersey, it was different because uh, Lou Lamorello told me before I even was there, and I didn't work for him. I worked for the network that carried the games. He said, if you can't have an opinion, you're no good to me. And the network wanted us because we were one of three teams in the New York area, not the only team there. They wanted us to be, let's say, impartial to an extent. They wanted us to talk about the Devils more than the other team but not cheer openly for them. So that was the approach that they wanted there, and it was more comfortable for me to work in a setting like that. And the transition to the network from a New Jersey game to a national game was not really a stretch at all. It was only a matter of talking 50% about both teams as opposed to, say, 70% about New Jersey and 30% about the other team. And then you really focus in the book about 2004, 2005, when the whole hockey season was eliminated for the strike. 
NBC gets the rights. There were some issues. Should ESPN have it, keep it, because they keep running at Sports Center when they didn't get it, they don't air it. And then at the same time, they overhauled the rules. And, and you talked about in the book about no ties and, and there's the obstructions opening up the game. And you felt that that was the big change in terms of helping get more, you know, hockey. It was a major shift from hockey from being what the sport was before 2004 and five into now what we see it today. Yes, uh, I think that first year, especially out of that, the, the hockey was, was really exhilarating. And then, of course, the coaches of the teams that had lesser talent learned how to coach against those rules. And so there were other rules that had to come in to try to, um, to, try to get that thrilling aspect of the game back again. And that's the way it has been with coaches back through the ages. There were always ways to anti-missile missile anything that was, that was working well. Your coaches had to protect their jobs, and if you were the coach of a team that had lesser talent, you had to counteract it some way or other. So I think, by and large, we've gotten a wonderful balance with the rules ever since Brendan Shanahan uh, was was the guy who took the lead of calling that conference in the darkest days of December um, in 2004 when everything was sitting out, and he called representatives of all facets of the sport, uh, with the permission of Gary Bettman to meet in Toronto and to spend a couple of days hammering out what he thought would and what that group agreed would be best for the sport. And uh, of all the proposals they came up with, only a couple of them were adopted either immediately or eventually. No touch icing and, and uh, shootouts and everything else all came about. And so the last 15 years have seen a glorious transformation of the game, I think. Uh, I, I am not one who really considers one era better than the other because the sport is magnificent anyway. But I do admire the guys who played in that earlier time because with the talent and with the rules they operated in, they were magnificent performers just like the guys are today. <laughs> And I guess the ultimate accomplishment in the sport is the Stanley Cup. And I can't think of any other other sport that has anything comparable to it. And you spend time in the book describing about that it's like they don't even care if they get paid. It's, it's something that just to have your name on that cup and to win that cup. I just And the way you brought the words out in terms of talking about what the players told you about winning the Stanley Cup. And sometimes they can't even describe it, the feeling themselves. And there have been times that I've been around it as a host in the earlier years, and it's sitting right next to you. And it is difficult to describe, and I'm hard-pressed to describe it even today. It is difficult to describe what that's like. It's a magnificent uh, trophy. The original bowl was first uh, minted in 1893. It's been long ago retired because it became so brittle. But there are two cups. One remains constantly at the Hall of Fame in Toronto, and the other is the one that has the various spelling mistakes in it and has X's through one of the names of someone who <laughs> was later learned to not belong on the cup, and so they X'd him out. It was one of the uh, relatives of the owner in Edmonton long ago. And so there are a lot of little flaws in it, and every so often they remove a ring for uh, from it because you can't, put the, any more names on it, and so they have to, uh, Gordie Howe's name and, and Maurice Rocket Richard's name is no longer on the Stanley Cup because those rings had to be moved, removed and others moved up to accommodate the, the great number of teams that are on it. There's a limit of 52 names, and they're all etched on one letter at a time. It's just, it has magnificent history, and they always shine it up, and it looks so good when it is brought out and presented. Um, and one final question is we talked to Doc Emmerich, author of Off Mike, tremendous book. You can buy it on Amazon, the bookstores, Barnes & Noble, all this. Are, it's, a, it's a great, great, great book. But you had a quote from Tyler Bozick, and he had a goal in front of 100,000 fans in Michigan Stadium for one of the Winter Classics. And he goes, the fans were great. They really seemed into it. Just And then you compared it to saying, but I've heard the same my, said quotes said by minor leaguers in front of like 100 fans or 500 fans. Yeah, it, uh, a hockey player is a hockey player, and, and there's almost a universal feeling. And, and uh, another, another analogy that I they used is that Connor McDavid's jersey is probably as laden with sweat as, as a guy that plays in the Federal Prospects Hockey League, which is the single-A level, uh, at the end of the night 
because you still have to go 200 feet to play your position. Uh, hockey players are united that way. They have that they have that feel about the sport, regardless of what their talent level might be. It's still a joy to play it. And I live near Port Huron, Michigan, and we have a franchise in the Federal Prospects League. If you have the NHL at the top and the next level, the American League, and the next level, the ECHL, and the next level, the Southern Pro League, then the Federal Prospects League would be not capital A, it's single, uh, it's lowercase a. But there's no less pride in playing at that level. When the puck is dropped, they're competing just as hard. And isn't it something? And I got hooked at a minor league game 60 years ago. And these are guys that compete. And somewhere in that arena is probably some kid nearsighted with his program there, keeping track of the goals and assists like I did that night, that's seeing his first game too. And I think that was one thing I was always conscious of, that somewhere in the TV audience that night, chances are there was someone who'd never seen a hockey game before. So I wanted to make sure that I did my best for that person. Well, hopefully we're going to have fans back in the stand soon and other people can have memories like that. Doc, thanks so much for coming on I Run Sports. I really appreciate it. And this has been just so exciting to hear you talk. And, and when I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm, I pretend I'm like watching a hockey game because you're describing <laughs> it in such detail. So thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. And I appreciate your mentioning the book. And 100% of anything that I get from Triumph Publishing goes to the hands-on care of animals. Uh, so if people get the book and they spend the money on the book and all of a sudden they put it down and say, gee, I don't like this, they should feel good about the fact that they spent the money and it's going to go to take care of creatures. No one's going to say so that. Much. No one's going to say. No one's going to say that. But again, I know you love okay. do- I you love dogs and horses, and it's yeah definitely for a great cause. So thanks again so much for coming on. I run sports. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. Okay, Doc. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Okay. So long. That is great stuff from the legend Doc Emmerich here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, we're about out of time, and I think you've got a little bit of a dilemma on what to do this week, and it may turn into a really busy week for you. Well, I mean, considering there's not that much sports, supposedly this time is dead sports, but um, I might go to the boxing match Camelo Alvarez on Saturday down to, at the Hard Rock Stadium. And then Sunday, maybe another NASCAR. I'm, I'm just got this buzz for NASCAR, so I might go to Homestead and watch a NASCAR race. And, of course, now basketball is playing. Go to Orlando for a game or the Heat for a game. It's, it's a lot of fun stuff. We can't wait to uh, talk more about it next week, but we are out of time. On behalf of Iron Mike, let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.